Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Are you working on something new? No. That is not like you, George. I've nothing to say. You have many things. Well, nothing that's not been said. said by you, though, I George. do not know where to go. I want to make things that count. Things that I will be what new. I have to do. What am I to do? So this is one of the fundamental questions in the arts and the humanities. It's also a fundamental question in the sciences and in mathematics. We're not going to talk about that today, but we are going to talk about that question of whether or not it's possible to say something that hasn't been said. Or what does Dave Byrne, David Byrne say? Say something once? Why say it again? And This all comes partly... Well, before I say that, let me just say that a few years ago, before the pandemic... I was at a public radio conference in Austin, Texas, where, of course, where originality goes, either to live or die. Uh, And um, I spent most of the conference walking around, walking up to other people who work in public radio saying, is there any way to do something with the show format, the public radio show, that isn't a host asking questions of a guest? Like, what else is there that we can do? And they discovered that this didn't make me popular. In fact, people were like avoiding me uh, in the hallways and stuff. They didn't want to have this conversation. It's not necessarily a comfortable conversation. But we are somewhat indebted for this conversation to the husband of our senior producer, Zane, uh, who first posed the question to Lily and wondered if it could be a show. I immediately thought it could be a show. And my next words were, but get me slattery. Uh, Brian Slattery uh, is the person, first person I think of in connection with this because uh, he's the arts editor for the New Haven Independent, but he's also a working musician who's in, I'm going to say, 11 bands and ad hoc, <laughs> ad, counting ad hoc duos and stuff like that at any given moment. I think you're, you're probably in about 11 different musical groups and also an author of, of uh, novels and short fiction and stuff like that and somebody who sort of thinks a lot across platforms. So he's going to be kind of my co-host today. And we're going to be talking to lots of other people as we go along here. But, Brian, in a way, we had the flip side of this conversation years ago. I mean, and I think yes. at, that, at that point it was a conversation about is there any such thing as plagiarism? That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's. I mean, they, they are kind of the same question, right? Especially if you live where I tend to live, especially as an arts editor, where the, the question of whether um, there's anything new is kind of like uh, the Schrodinger like yes and no <laughs> at the same time <laughs> you know it's, it's you know, like we feel like it's our it's our job both to point out um what aspects of some you know some new some new as in like uh you know a new album or a new uh, it's gonna be really hard to talk about this you know a new album or a new play uh you know to what extent does it remind us of something we saw before and to what extent does it seem like it's doing something that's you know all its own quote unquote whatever <laughs> Right. Well, that means to you. I mean, part of my job is to make it easier to talk about this. And I think there's one obvious fork in the road. Uh, And and that fork in the road is, am I going to aim mainly at creating something that's going to be very popular, well-received, perhaps make me a whole bunch of money? Or am I going to, in fact, make some kind of 
paradigm-shattering statement. And those two, they really are different roads for the most part, at least I think in the assumption of the artist. It's really thing. unusual that those two things come together. Every once in a while they do. You know, yeah, every, I, I every once argue, in a while that happens. I would argue, and I think we've had this conversation before, that when the Beatles are recording Strawberry Fields, you know, they are the most popular musical artists in the world at that right. moment. But they're also avant-gardists. They are yes. tr- playing they, stuff backwards and recording at different speeds and everything under the sun to see if they can get it to sound different. I definitely think of the Beatles as spending social capital. <laughs> 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 you know, they, that they, yeah, everyone, there's, there's always a few things on every album that's, you know, what if we try this? And, and I mean, obviously it's contributed a lot to, you know, why we still listen to them. Right. And I think what if is maybe the key, you know, idiom here, right? Yeah. What if we didn't do it that way? What if we did it this way? What if we did it a way that I've totally. never heard of anybody doing it, right? Totally. Because I mean, I mean, for especially for someone like the Beatles, but like anybody who's sort of, you know, the really popular at the top of the game as it currently exists, like the, the pressure to just sort of make the same thing over and over again must be uh, uh, bewildering. <laughs> All right. Okay. So let's, yeah. let's bring into the conversation Kirby Ferguson. Kirby Ferguson, a filmmaker and creator of the Everything is a Remix series, uh, and uh, a series which I think sort of answers the question that we're asking in a pretty specific way. But um, Kirby Ferguson, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So you have both short and long answers to this question, right? I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, give there's, the give there's the whole, sh- like half hour long. <laughs> right. You can watch so online. Let's <laughs> let's start with yeah a series of, of those actually, but let's start out with with the short answer. What would your short answer be? This to to what is there anything new? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I'm a big believer in new. Uh, I think the paradox is that you make the new things out of old things. That that's really the point of my story that I'm telling. It's not that there is nothing new, which I think is a very, uh, you know, non-empowering sort of message to be putting out into the world. And it's just so obvious looking around that, of course, there are new things. Of course, there are new technologies that change our lives. Of course, there are new stories that reach us in different ways and teach us new things. Like, obviously, new things are happening. But just the, the little twist, the little weird element is that that new stuff came out of old stuff. It was born completely out of old stuff. So I sense a Slattery quoting Borges moment coming right about. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, like, it's, I, I, you know, it's, it's, this is frustrating because I've, I've certainly, I feel like I've been living by this for years and I can't for the life of me find this exact essay where he said this. But it was basically like, mm-hmm. you know, he was arguing that it, he was talking about literature and saying that if something seems new to you, it's probably just because you haven't done enough homework. Like, you just don't yes. know what, you know, what the influences are. Like, he, yes. he, the only thing that he, as a librarian, couldn't figure out was Kafka. Um, but uh, it's possible that, you know, it's just because he hadn't done his homework either, right? Um, amazingly, but possible. Yeah, yeah, so Kirby, I mean, there are times within within your series in which this does feel a little enervating. And I, th- I think in particular, I think it's in the second one of your Everything is a Remix series, uh, you cite a statistic that I think uh, over 10 years, looking at the top mm-hmm. 10 movies, 92 of them fall into the categories of remakes or or, or yes. sequels or derivations. 92 of them are essentially vibing off some really obvious mm-hmm. pre-existing text. So why shouldn't we feel kind of depressed about that? Well, I mean, obviously we can go too far with it. I mean, anybody who looks uh, at a movie marquee now uh, knows that, you know, that what it's, what's the new big movie? It's the new superhero movie, you know? It's, it's whatever the latest edition of 
Doctor Strange or Spider-Man is or the Avengers, right? So obviously we can get go too far with it. And we go too far with it because it's relatively safe, right? Like movies are a high-risk industry. You want to minimize risk as much as you possibly can because they're super expensive. So we get these, you know, fairly low-risk uh, endeavors going on. So obviously we can go too far with it, but also like making things familiar is a way to make them palatable. And I think people who are innovative should remember that when you build in something familiar that people can uh, get a grasp on that really helps people to to swallow your idea and I, I want you and Brian to talk about this a little bit I mean your series begins with I think a, on a more hopeful note we're sort of talking you're sort of talking about and showing us the birth of what we now call hip-hop right and and the yes. way in which it it does work off of a, a musical collage but maybe say that a little bit about that and I, I know Brian will have stuff to say too Sure. I mean, hip hop, the, the revolution of, of the there were two revolutionary elements to hip hop. One was that you could talk in a song rather than singing. But the other one was that you could sample, uh, you know, sampling of what was around before this. But it was really hip hop that popularized it and made it a thing. So sampling is taking a riff from an existing song and putting it into your into your song and making a new song. So hip hop was this sort of bold outrageous thing that did something extremely provocative because they were doing this without anybody's permission of using exactly somebody else's music in your song rather than sort of recreating it yourself or whatever they were actually taking the riff from good times and just using it in a new song so hip-hop did this very provocative thing uh in like the late 70s and and Brian, I think Kirby makes the point in the videos that in some ways, or in the, these short films about this, that in a way this unlocks creativity rather than, or can unlock creativity rather than confine it. I don't know. What would, give me I mean, your take. I I completely agree. I mean, I th- I think of I think of hip hop as you know, if you if you go to the like the the fair use arguments about whether something is transformative or not, um, which I, I I'm. We're going to get into, I imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, I I would have argued uh, for decades while the copyright law was catching up with hip hop that what hip hop was doing was like quite transformative. You know, to the point where um, uh, sometimes, as recognizable as these pieces are, they're actually not particularly recognizable because they've been mm-hmm. recontextualized so dramatically that it's kind of. Um, you know, it's it's shocking sometimes yeah. to find the source and then discover what else, what the original context for that thing was. Um, like certain drum breaks, you know, when you hear the original yeah. song, it's it's really hard to imagine that the person who heard that one little break, you know, which is usually just a measure of music, um, heard mm-hmm. something so completely different <laughs> from what from what yeah. the original context was. It's you know, I mean, to me, it's like quite beautiful and really remarkable. Go ahead, Kirby. Yeah, I mean, I, I forget the exact example, but like there are plenty of riffs uh, in uh, plenty of samples in famous hip hop songs that are from like jazz. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it's this very sort of mellow. You can hear this very kind of mellow loungy tune. And then there's this little drum break or a little keyboard break or whatever. Yeah. And that's in, in a Dr. Dre song or whatever it was. I forget the exa- exact example, but they just end up in the most unlikely of places. I mean, it seems to me that one of the ways that you might test Actually, let me back up and say a different thing, which is that it, it it does seem to me that Kirby, that probably as a species, 
We're about 99% mimetic and about 1% original. I mean, basically every time somebody does something original, we if it's if it has any, you know, traction at all, we know yeah. that the next thing will be just copy after copy after copy or at least restatement statement or repurposing one after the other. Undoubtedly. I mean, that that is that's why originality needs that's why I think copyright is fundamentally a good thing. I think new things, they need protection. You know, they are hard to do. There's not a lot of natural incentives to do them. They're really difficult. They're expensive. And they're easy to copy as well, right? So uh, undoubtedly, mostly what we do is copy. That's the natural thing that we do to create something that is new and different. You're sort of pushing against society when you do that. Right. You are pushing in society. Great point. And, you know, that kind of gets us to, well, you know, Clement Greenberg, in talking about the visual arts, says all profoundly original art looks ugly at first. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, Brian, to that point, when we <laughs> first started meeting about this, uh, my first thoughts, and I think among your first thoughts, it turned out, although you weren't at that meeting, uh, went to 1913. You've got uh, something approaching uh, a riot in Paris over Stravinsky's right, right to spring, yeah. and then the so-called Scandal concert uh, in, in Germany, for sure, uh, reacting to Schoenberg. So, say a little bit about that. Like, in in a way, maybe it's a comment on 1913 that people had the capacity to get that upset about something they'd never heard before. Yeah, I mean, so so there's there's been a thing in music that when someone comes up with a new uh, and it is it I mean new in the sense that like most people haven't heard somebody do something like it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, either it's because they're playing with tonality or uh, you know, or deciding to throw out uh, you know, a key altogether, or because they're making a new sound, which which can happen also. Uh people tend to get really upset about that at first and then it's about like 10 years later everybody's kind of used to it um you know so uh you know this this happened with Stravinsky it happened with uh, with Schoenberg um and then you could fast forward to like it happening with Ornette Coleman and free jazz um happening when you plug in a guitar and make it really loud and everybody over 30 thinks it's noise and everybody under 30 thinks it's amazing uh you know, it goes it goes on and on, right? Like, like there's a there's a kind of cool process by which like new sounds, if enough people like them, and particularly if they're influential people, um, they quickly become just sort of part of the soundscape of society. Um, but the sort of beautiful part of it is that I think that like the capacity to come up with new sounds has, in some ways, gotten even easier than it was before. You know, like the technology to make new sounds is more readily available. Uh, you know, there's more people doing it, um, which you know tells you a lot about, you know, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the diversity of like things that people want to hear in the world. You know, like I'm, I'm always arguing that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails is a bit of a sonic pioneer that way. Like he he made sounds that nobody heard before. And now we hear them all the time. So, uh, Kirby, you have a phrase sugaring the pill uh, about this very question. Explain what you mean by that. I don't know if it's my phrase. I don't think I invented that okay. one. But yeah, I mean, I think like for folks listening, I think an important takeaway uh, is that innovation needs to be uh, dressed up in a way to make it appealing, right? The innovative thing is, like we've been saying, it's naturally, it puts you off a bit. It confuses you. Uh, it creates tension in a person's mind, right? So when you're doing, when you're trying to come up with that new exciting thing, it really helps to build some familiarity into it so that people know what to do with it. You know, like you can over innovate and make something, make whatever you're doing kind of alienating to other people, right? 
So that's like an important little lesson for anybody, like whatever it is you're doing, doesn't have to be, you know, a traditionally creative thing. It could be a new restaurant or whatever, your business, you know, building some creative, building some familiarity into it can really help I mean, people get a, get a grasp of it. There are certainly like creative people who thrive on make, making people uncomfortable that way. Like they, sure. they love There's the idea. Yeah, they, they love the idea that they've made something that a lot of people don't like. Like you, absolutely. Like Scott Walker is a great example, right? The guy who went from like lounge singer to making records that were sort of like it was like, oh, did you think that that one was unlistenable? Like, here's my next <laughs> record. Like, I'm gonna I'm yes. gonna see how many fans I have left when I finally die, you know? And, and you, I mean, he was amply rewarded. I mean, there's a there's a small group of people out there who just love <laughs> everything that that man did and think he got better and better. Well, I mean, and I wonder also whether, I don't know, I've never seen John Cage quoted about this one way or another, but there's something intentionally provocative, Brian, even about Cage's 433, which is four minutes and 33 seconds. For sure. Right. I mean, he's, and he's sort of like a wonderful, like, trickster of a character. You know, he's, uh, I, I feel like to him, he enjoyed the, I would, I would bet good money that he saw all of this as a bit of a lark, like as a joke. Mm -hmm. And, um. He enjoyed watching people. He enjoyed figuring out who got the joke, right? <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and who didn't. Speaking of people who get the joke, Jonathan Keats, uh, an artist who's been on our show a lot, I believe he did a thing where he uh, claimed that he had copyrighted or I did four thirty three as a ringtone. Uh, that he didn't have <laughs> people, so, um, uh, speaking of people who get the joke, so I want to talk a little bit too about that. The shock of the nude is you know Robert Hughes's famous uh, title uh, for a book about modernism, uh, and so let's let's sort of look at this in in real time. And I'm going to have Kirby and Brian react to this a little bit because this is a point that Brian made. So let's listen to uh, Schoenberg for a second. This is going to be a one cat. This is the string quartet number three, uh, Opus thirty. Uh, uh, performed by the Kolisch Quartet. Uh, here we go. <laughs> and then to Brian's point, and get cat, get ready for a two. Uh, I won't even tell you what piece of music this is. I'm going to just uh, let the audience figure out what a two is. If you don't ha have it, that's part of Bernard Herrmann's uh, score for Psycho. So, Brian, this is sort of the thing. The first thing is the thing that you know makes people run to the box office and see if they get their money back, at least when they first hear it. Yeah. And then in a matter <laughs> of a few decades, right. it, it's, well, so talk about that crossing that, that that sound makes. Yeah, I mean, what's cool about it is that, like, like Schoenberg was, a, you know, was arrogant about how much he wanted to like reinvent classical music he thought it was dead and it was time to just you know burn it all down and start again and like the the he did it he did this twice um but the the thing that we heard was from his atonal period where he's just like we're i'm gonna make music that's so atonal that you know there's there's absolutely no <laughs> there's no place for your ear to land it makes it really hard to play, by the way. You know, there's a point where you play something by Schoenberg and you're like, did we do it right? We don't even know, <laughs> um, which is kind of beautiful. But, um, you know, he, so he, he, uh, he, fled, um, he fled Hitler. He was, when he was, you know, he was in the 30s. He saw the writing on the wall and he's like, I'm out of here. 
and he ended up in Hollywood where he made a bunch of friends and one of them happened to be Bernard Herrmann <laughs> you know, and then among a bunch of other film composers so like he had he ended up having a real effect on the way that um, Hollywood scored its movies and because Bernard Herrmann got hitched up with Albert Hitchcock Alfred Hitchcock excuse me um, you know it, it quickly became like the sound of thrillers the sound of horror movies mm-hmm. the sound of uh, you know, you know. I think Herman quickly realized that the the anxiety that Schoenberg was trying to produce in, like, you know, uh, the classical music elite uh, could work when someone's chasing somebody else with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you know, it, he put it to amazing use, and I, I think that he managed to make those sounds like much more palatable. Like people had a context for them, and they they sort of understood that their anxiety was actually kind of okay in that in that place. And then like when you go back and listen to Schoenberg now, I think people I think people don't even hear it necessarily as atonal. Uh they just hear it as like kind of a, you know, anxious music like they've heard in, in movies a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which which I'm sure would anger Schoenberg to no end. <laughs> <laughs> so so Kirby, you know, we've been talking about people so far, but obviously the next iteration of it, and it's probably already happening now, is it being taken out of human hands. And AI is going to start mm-hmm. making a lot of decisions here. So uh, as we get ready to wrap up this segment of the show, I don't know, where, where does that lead us? Gosh, who knows? I mean, it's so early. It's it's really difficult to say. It's really just getting going. For, for folks who don't know, computers can now create beautiful images like from nothing. You can tell it, give me a border collie in a field and it will give you this really beautiful rendering of a border collie in a field. There's no photographer, there's no illustrator, the AI just does it for you. So we've crossed this crazy threshold where uh, AIs can can create. They're not creative, but they can create with human assistance. And it's they were the, the controversial element is that they were trained on us, of course. They learned by studying millions upon millions or over a billion of uh, images that are copyrighted. Uh, it's done completely without permission. So it's real controversial. It's a very new realm uh, that is rapidly evolving and where it's going, nobody knows. Yeah, keep your eye uh, right now on something called ChatGPT, which is uh, uh, backed yes. par- partly by Elon Musk. and can do- You can just tell it to write you a poem. Uh, yes. And it'll write you a <laughs> poem. So, And that's very disturbing. Uh, although the poem I saw was not that good, but if that, but that's. <laughs> I feel like that program is good at making like solid B plus work. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Maybe B, maybe B minus. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's yeah. Not, it ain't Seamus Haney. Like, I don't feel threatened by it just yet. Not yet. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, if I could just add one last thing, it, it's funny that it, it, in image generation, it's having a very different response than it is in text. Mm-hmm. Writers don't seem very concerned about it. Illustrators seem very concerned about it. Just because I guess there's something generic about text, you know, people aren't that bothered by it. Possibly. I think there might be a lot of different reasons. We don't have time to explore all of them. But Kirby Ferguson is a filmmaker and creator of the Everything is a Remix series. Uh, Thanks so much to him. Brian and I will be back with more about the question of, is it possible to do anything new? While in Italy, I experienced a miracle. I'm walking through the grounds of an old... Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so if you're just joining us, uh, this is a conversation about is it possible to do something new? Is everything new already been done? I'm talking specifically about the arts and the humanities. My co-host with me today, Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent and also a working musician, a novelist, short story writer. Joining us also for this segment, Martha Buskirk, uh, professor of art history and criticism uh, at Montserrat College of Art and the author of Is It Ours? Art, Copyright, and Public Interest, among other books. Also, Jill Magid, uh, an artist, writer, and filmmaker. Um, so I think in, in some ways, Brian, before we bring uh, these other, our, our two next guests along, it is one thing we haven't done and maybe we can't do it is set up any kind of parameters for what counts as new. You know, right. You could I could make the argument, I think, that Hamilton is new, that what Lin-Manuel Miranda did was new. It was new enough to seem really kind of shocking to anybody who had an idea, a latent idea of what a Broadway musical is. Sure. But he's once again, to Kirby's point, repurposing an awful a lot of, you know, biggie stuff and like all kinds of. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like if you if you had listened to nothing but Broadway musicals, Hamilton is like an, an atomic bomb. But if you listen to hip hop, Hamilton is like pretty good hip hop. <laughs> you know, it's but not, it's not a bad hip hop. Right. You know, but like, I mean, but also like Lin Manuel Miranda would be the first person to say this, right? Like he he knew what he was doing, and he he knew who his sources were to the point where I think that they are effectively quoted in Hamilton. Oh yeah, they are absolutely <laughs> quoted. So yeah. um, so I, I think both of our guests may be wondering if we were even asking the right questions. So so Martha, maybe get us started here. I think one of your questions is: Is it even possible? to repeat as opposed to, is it possible to do something new? Yes, that was the first thing that I thought when your producer got in touch with me about this show was just um, immediately turning your question around Mm -hmm. because there are just so many examples of it being utterly impossible to repeat uh, something. I mean, forgery is is one area where... uh, you know, forgeries are unmasked for all kinds of, of reasons that have to do with not being able to make a ultimately convincing uh, uh, fake of something that happened before. Um, I also just for picking up on something that Brian was mentioning in the, the earlier episode. Uh, there is this tendency to 
want to draw comparisons when you first encounter something, and that, in a sense, can undermine the idea of newness. And I, I teach at an art school, and we, I, I find myself doing that in crit situations of saying, hey, you know, this is interesting. Have you looked at X, Y, or Z? And, you know, it's, it's a, a, you know, a way of trying to understand something, but it also can be used or perceived as, as essentially undermining the notion that what you're looking at is actually new and different and interesting. But and Martha, I think that's also part of our vocabulary for describing anything. You know, if you need to describe something to somebody who hasn't seen it or heard it or read it, whatever it is, you might say, well, it's sort of, I don't know, Lupe Fiasco meets Poulenc or something, right? We, we do that all the time. There's just sort of this, that sounds like a really bad idea, actually. But, uh, <laughs> but, but how else do you, can you explain it except in terms of points of reference? And, um, you know, I actually was thinking of a sort of interesting example of that um, when, you know, this, this example that came up to mind for me was actually something from a, a while ago. I participated in a roundtable and a, a prominent critic in a conversation dismissed a work by Janine Antoni, um, this uh, piece of hers uh, called Loving Care from 1992, as just a slightly altered reprise of a Flux's performance by Shigeko Kubota. And um, in For Loving Care, Janine Antoni uh, participated in an exhibition that was uh, focused on sort of feminist responses to, uh, to issues around fetishism. And her piece involved her dipping her hair in loving care hair dye and mopping the floor with it and essentially filling filling the gallery space with the, this marking. And the Shigeko Kubota piece that was being used as a point of comparison was Kubota uh, strapping a brush to her underwear and sort of uh, crouching on the, the, the floor to create this uh, piece called vaginal painting, uh, which uh, used the, the brush to make a kind of meandering gesture. Hmm. And you know, the two are just utterly different. Right. And so to to say that the one is simply a reprise of the other is just such a, a sort of mindless dismissal by comparison. So, Jill, I want to get you into this conversation. Uh, you also wondered whether we were asking the right question. When, if we're asking the question, has everything been done? Uh, what question would you substitute for that? Well, um, when I was talking to your producer, yeah, that was the I had a similar reaction to Martha. Um, that I always think about with artwork is what is it doing? And um, and I think if you reframe the question with a lot of these kinds of works, even the one that Martha just um, suggested and discussed, the intention of the work or not even the intention, but what the work is actually doing, because sometimes that's different than what the intention is, um, might look similar to what someone else is doing, um, but might be doing something completely different. And it depends on all different kinds of things, like the moment in time, the context, how it's being done and carried out. And so I think that um, looking too quickly to say, oh, that looks like that, or that sounds like that, um, you can be missing a lot of really um, important 
nuances that really affect the work. Because in the end, culture is just building on top of culture. I mean, which I think goes down to what everyone was talking about in the last one is that like, if you do something that doesn't refer to anything within culture, which I don't even think is possible, but if you do it very lightly, no one's going to understand where you're coming from, you know? And so, um, so yeah, my question is much more about what is the work doing um, than is it new? So maybe just quickly walk us through, I mean, you did uh, uh, just a few years ago a public artwork called Tender that involved 120,000 newly minted 2020 pennies, uh, single engraved with the phrase, the body was already so fragile uh, uh, on the uh, on the edge, I think, or I don't know where I should Correct. Go. Yeah, on the edge. edge. Yeah. So talk about that. Talk about what else happened and, and specifically build on what you said before about what your intention was. Yeah, so I was asked to make a public artwork during the pandemic, which is a challenge because the public's all indoors. And um, I thought about money and the circulation um, of money as a way for artwork to reach the public. And conceptually, I was really interested in the fact that um, in the media, there was these uh, very kind of crude comparisons between the amount of people who were dying um, from COVID and how well the economy was doing. It was like these many people died, but the stock market's doing great. Um, and that comparison I found um really um, uncomfortable. So I decided to make a piece that in some way dealt with um, that feeling. So the 120,000 newly mint minted 2020 pennies were specific, obviously, to 2020 and what was happening in 2020. And um, the phrase, which goes along with what we're talking about here, was appropriated um, from a New Yorker article in which uh, a venture capitalist was talking about um, the economy and doing a very common metaphor um, that the economy is like a body. And in his comment, he said, you know, the crash of 2008 was um, a massive heart attack for the economy, but everyone knew how to fix it and they stuck some Band-Aids on it. But when the pandemic hit, um, the body was already so fragile, and then he continued. So I was thinking of um, the pennies as a kind of public art, because coins are commissioned by the government, and that public art um, has propaganda on both sides of it, on the faces. And so I wanted to insert a different voice and um, from the public and taking it out of context so that its meaning could be broader. Like, is this the body of the government or a human body? Which body are we speaking about? And engraved it um, on the penny's edge. The body was also already so fragile, and then recirculated those 120,000 pennies back into the economy. Um, and the 120,000 number is $1,200, which is equal to one stimulus check that the Trump um, presidency put out as part of the CARES Act. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot, lot there. We could be talking about this all day and we don't, we have so little time here, but I don't know, Brian, you know, uh, I'm thinking also of something that you said early in our conversations about all this, which is there's some things that are kind of forms that are kind of static. It's hard to do a new kind of pen or a new kind of chair, although we can, we can talk about that. But this is an example of taking something 
you know, like a penny that is has kind of a static form right. and just completely transforming its relationship to the world. But I just love you to just react, however, to what uh, yeah. you guys have been saying. I mean, for, I mean, first of all, I, I, you can't see me, but I was nodding vigorously through <laughs> both of you speaking. It's something that I, those kinds of questions are the kinds of things that uh, that I wrestle with as an arts journalist all the time. You know, how do you, uh, you know, how do you describe what's interesting about this thing, and also how do you uh, get readers into it? You know, like how do you give them an entryway so that they, if they go see the thing for themselves or hear it for themselves, they have something to grab onto. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a total conundrum. Um, about the penny piece in particular, it got me thinking about how the questions about comparing it to other artworks um, is there's even the broader one of calling it art at all, right? Like that's in some ways these things are about you know uh, managing people's expectations and like do you you know what do you call it? It's uh, as soon as you call it art, people ask a certain set of questions about it. Um, if I were to call your piece, say, like financial terrorism, <laughs> there would be like a whole other set of questions about it, right? Like, is it uh, is it an art piece or is it a is it an attempt to undermine the economy, <laughs> or is it or is it both, or is it or or what is it, right? Um, but these these kinds of uh, I mean, I love things like that that get us that get us thinking about how we I think we put frames on things even when we we try not to it's really hard not to put a frame on something and you know the more the more you sort of get uh the more attention you pay to the whole framing question the more you realize a how much you do it and b how kind of essentially meaningless they all are like they're they're all houses of cards to some degree and (laughs) it's just a question of how easy they are to push over so, Martha, you, you know, we're going to run out of time here really fast, and this could be a four-hour conversation. But it's also interesting to talk about, like, what happens when this work interacts with the public, when the consuming public uh, starts to look at it. And you, you think about sort of modernism uh, as it arose in the immediate aftermath and even in, during World War One, where there was this kind of sense of, well, what if, what if we did something different? Everything else, everything seems so wrong. But one got the sense that maybe the public wasn't quite ready for this. Whereas it seems as though after World War II, there was a sense that while so much has been destroyed, Hitler had been appropriating canonical art and Greco-Roman traditions and stuff for his own nefarious purposes. Maybe there was a little bit more interest in something experimental. But I just, I guess maybe as a, as a critic, do you just see this as inevitably a hard sell to the art-consuming public when something is radically new? Um. I mean that's that's an incredibly broad question. Yes. I because I think there's there are many publics mm-hmm. and so um and many many publics that will will experience experience or have a context for for a work of, of different types. But I do think one thing that's interesting is that you know we have a, an expectation around the a concept of the avant-garde that the avant-garde will, will give us something new and so uh it's it's also interesting to think about artists trying to engage with with a tradition and how you know how for example do you carry forward the tradition of portraiture and the the, the recent um Portraits uh, that were unveiled uh, in the last uh, few years of the of the Obamas, both two two different sets of portraits, raise an interesting question of how how one can continue to work uh, within a tradition and still make something new out of it. 
Well, now, Jill, I've got to, in the time that remains, pivot towards composite, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, mm-hmm. your uh, work in which you use the cognitive interview used by police, FBI, and forensic artists to acquire information from a witness about a, a suspect. You write a letter asking people you've known intimately to recall your face in detail. Then you write a second letter to one of these forensic artists explaining that there is a woman who is absent and you can provide her description and you <laughs> require their help uh, to realize her and then that's what you get back. This seems like a real deliberate effort to reimagine the entire notion of portraiture. But is that what your intention going in? Or, I mean, do you remember your intention going in? Yeah, I mean, I think there was um, there was a, a, a lot of things I was exploring. But um, this idea, maybe to stay within the, the frame of this discussion, um, it's also a kind of way of to see myself anew through this very bureaucratic, um methodology of the police, which is highly problematic and is shown through um, all these different ways that it leads a witness. The way they're asking the questions is like the kind of information they'll get back. Um, so I thought this kind of like um, approach to asking people to recall something about a person had a kind of latent eroticism to it that I heightened by sending these questions to past lovers and then sent their responses to a whole different crowd of forensic artists and they came back and of course the portraits that they made was a combination of that person's memory of me and my face and how the questions were asked by the police and how they were interpreted by a forensic artist. So you have this whole collaborative um, slew of people who are imagining what they can't see um, in terms of a face and creating a portrait of that. And so I really enjoyed seeing these layers um, you know, all at the surface and placing them all together. And they all kind of looked like the same woman, but not really. So it complicated and fragmented um, an an image of what portraiture is and can be. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, That was Jill Magid, uh, an artist, writer, and filmmaker, Martha Buskirk, professor of art history and criticism at Montserrat College of Art, author of Is It Ours? Art, Copyright, and Public Interest. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We're going to try a different format after this. I knew we were going to run out of time here. So uh, very quickly here, thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today. Uh, Lily Tyson, our senior producer, produced this episode, I think, with some help, help as usual, from Jonathan McPants. Uh, thanks, to, uh, obviously, to Zane Weinberger for thinking up this whole thing in the first place. So what we did was we asked some people that we knew to give us some voice memos uh, about this. Uh, and so Brian Slattery and I are just going to react to a few of them. In a way, the whole 
the guy who got the whole thing started uh, was uh, Pedro Centeno, uh, who was a ceramic artist and owner of Junk Pot Studio in West Hartford, who had a conversation with Zane. Let's hear what Pedro says now. If I was asked as if uh, everything has been done before in the arts and humanity, I think as it relates to my specific medium, I would have to say yes. I think that there's a struggle for us to be true to ourselves, but it's often overshadowed by um, needing to be original. I don't feel that that necessarily exists. I think that as artists, we create based on our influences rather than an idea developed within a vacuum. You know, we take ideas and topics and, um, and we give our own spin. And I think from there, our work will evolve into something that may be deemed as, as original. Brian, that's a nice, sla- a nice uh, Brian Slattery, that's a nice uh, kind of synthesis of stuff that we've been saying. But any yeah. specific reactions to that? Um, no, I mean, it's funny because I, I find myself agreeing with everybody, even though they disagree <laughs> with each other, which is kind of beautiful in its way. Right. Um, <laughs> I do think, I mean, what I, what I would say is that I feel like in some ways what he's describing is, is making it new again, right? Like there's, you could make, totally make the argument that the newness is all in those details that he's talking about. Absolutely. Um, you know. um, all right. So let's hear from Stephen Holmes, also uh, an artist and, and curator. Has everything already been done? It's a pretty fundamental question for artists, art historians, curators, critics, and anyone else interested in art and culture. My view is no. There will always be innovation, even if it's simply new combinations of established ideas. And the history of art is filled with and kind of measured by instances of what people call genius. Completely new ways of saying something old or completely new ways of seeing new things. Every artist I know makes work as an article of faith that even just in the dedicated practice of their craft, there's an evolving meaning, if only for them as artists. So no, everything hasn't already been done. If I'm wrong, then someone needs to tell artists and the rest of us to go home and find something else to do. (laughs) I I love his thing about the article of faith, that just in the practice of your craft. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that that got me thinking about, um, like, one of the people that I do think of as being an innovator, like, uh, uh, like David Foster Wallace's nonfiction, mm-hmm. you know, which I, which, you know, when I first encountered, it hit me as sort of like nonfiction 3.0, like, oh, with you can do it this way? I, did, I had no idea that you could, you know, that you could, uh, <laughs> you could do journalism the way that he did it. And uh, at the same time, I'm sure if you asked him what he was doing, he would he would just tell you, you know, he's just trying his best to <laughs> write something honest. We don't know what David Foster <laughs> you know what I mean? would ever tell us. We don't know how we right. answer that question. We but you know what I mean. I, yeah. I, you can't imagine him being like, yes, I am reinventing nonfiction. Right. You know? he, he might have. Uh, <laughs> we know what Jason Siegel would have said anyway. All right, so let's um, go to Lara Herskovich, uh, singer-songwriter, uh, former Connecticut troubadour. And an important thing about Lara is when she's doing this, she's driving up 95. Anybody who could say anything coherent driving on I-95 up from the south I think she's coming, uh, has my respect. As I was reflecting on your theme today, I was thinking about that in my life, and I think in general, we circle back to the same essential human truths over and over, over the course of our lives, and hopefully um, on a deeper level each time we circle back to it. I think great art touches down on these truths in different ways at different times, and in that way, I think simultaneously very little is wholly original in the literal sense and if the art is being created 
the paintbrush or guitar or voice or dance shoes or camera of an artist who's aspiring to meaning-making, um, purpose-finding, aspiring to healthier ways of being individually, collectively, and in harmony, hopefully, with the natural world around us, then I think it's also wholly original and can't not be uh, because it's being filtered through their mind, soul, spirit, and heart. I mean, there's so much there, too, Brian, but just quick reaction. There's a ton. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that what she's getting at is something that I think about a lot is that I, I think that there's a tendency of people to think of uh, things they're not familiar with as difficult. And um, I think by it's reductive to sort of be like, well, this is about sex or this is about death or this is about whatever. But at the same time, it's actually really useful. It's 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 your way in. And then like by sort of grappling with the, the major thing that you can identify, you can then, you know, figure out how you feel about all this new stuff. It's not quite as new. It's a little bit more welcoming and you it's uh i think that like the tension that she's describing is one of the sort of pleasures of uh you know of wrestling with things that at first seem new to you or it, uh, oppositely like finding finding the the thing that's interesting in something that may not seem interesting at first <laughs> right be right. a little bit more generous about the way that you look at things I have a lot I want to say about this, but I want to see if I can get to our last two voice memos. Fortunately, Susan was pretty uh, succinct. This is Susan Clenard, uh, a sculptor whose work uh, always strikes me as vividly uh, original, even though it works in very familiar forms. But here's what she says. I will clearly and directly say without naivete or hubris, rather with deep trust and clarity in my creative being, that as long as our hearts thump, the world continues to evolve and humans feel, we as artists will always find unique and new forms of expression. No AI can ever replace the human spirit and creativity. I mean, to me, Brian, one of the things we haven't had time to talk about is sort of the dual purposes of art. One of them is, I think, is to to heal the cracks in paradise. You know, we lost paradise yeah. and we're trying to mend this cracked Fabergé egg of existence. But we're also trying to break it, too. I mean, you know, they're looking, artists are constantly looking for new ways. And it's both there, and, you know, both of those things are there, I think, in, in Susan's uh, humanism and inventiveness. Yeah. I mean, I... At one point, I started to realize that I, I, I thought of I thought of all the art forms as um, things you do when you can't quite articulate what it is that you're even asking necessarily, right? It's 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 the way that we ask questions that we can't just answer in an essay. You know, if you if we could write an essay about it, we would, but you you can't. You don't even you can't even quite form the question, and you can't you know much less come you know have a coherent answer to it. So you you paint it, or you <laughs> or you write an elliptical poem, or you make a noise. And you hope that that's something like an answer. All right. We have to stop there. I've got a great David Edelstein clip that we'll have to find some other way to share for you. Uh, but thanks for listening today. And yeah, this is our attempt also to try to do something different, do something original, find a different way to do the same kind of show. I hope you noticed that too. Still, no matter the vice, I never do anything twice. Once, yes, once can Nice.